Well, good morning. We are closing up here on our series called Undefeated. And as we are moving on in through the book of Acts on our way to Easter. Who's excited about Easter, by the way? Anybody? Yeah, I'm pumped. It's going to be an awesome weekend that's coming up here. A lot of work, but an awesome weekend. But before we go any further and close out this current series we're in, I need to press pause for a minute because obviously we are a church in a community. And obviously in the last month, our churches and our community has been feeling the hit and the brunt of some pretty dramatic and devastating events that have occurred in our area. And I want to take a minute to just address those considering it is the Holy Week and it is a week in which we're thinking about God and we're contemplating all of the things about Jesus being our King and our Lord. And yet here we're looking at uh, the situation with that poor boy Noah and what's gone on there. And at the same time, just wondering about the evil and, and the horror of what has happened to that. And some of you have been affected either with because you've been to the school or because you knew the families or because you uh, live even in the area. And others of you have been affected also by the, the CHP officer, Steve Lycon, Lycon, I'll get that right eventually, who was um, killed on the 15 freeway last weekend. And that's been a pretty, another pretty devastating and dramatic situation in our, in our town and our community. And what I want to do today is pause for a minute and just remind us how this Holy Week fits in with the evil that surrounds us. Because evil does surround us every single day. It runs through our hearts. It runs through this world. And it's not something to excuse away as craziness. It's not something to call sickness. It's something to be called what it is. It's called evil. And when we understand that, then we have to back up and go, well, how in the world can a good God have this situation with evil? So many people ask that and wonder about that. And I believe that the Palm Sunday is a great illustration of what God does with evil. When Jesus marched in on that donkey, he was proclaiming that he was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He was the Messiah who had come to save the world. He was the one who had entered in to deal the final blow to death and evil. And he did that on the cross, but we also know that there is a day coming, a day of reckoning, a day spoken about in the prophets of the Old Testament, one warned about by the apostles and ultimately predicted that Jesus himself would come as the judge over all things that are evil. There will be no small or large evil event that have occurred in our own lives or in this world that will not come across his tribunal moment in which he will judge and deal exactly with it, exactly as it should be dealt with. That, as Christians, should give us hope in the midst of evil. That, as Christians, should wake us to the reality that we do not have to back away in fear, but we have the opportunity to proclaim a truth that God will deal with this. Nothing will be gotten away with. No aspect of crime or evil will go past his all-seeing eye without him rightly dealing with it. And we know that that same judge who has brought that true and exact judgment has also granted grace. And we have a message of grace then that we can bring to this community as well. And he has also granted comfort because he has made us and he loves us. And so in this time, what we want to do is we want to take a minute to pray. One, and thank God for his justice, that all of this will be dealt with. Two, that we ask for his comfort on our community, and especially the families and those who are directly impacted by these events. And three, that we would be a people then ready to give an answer and bring a message to this world that so desperately is seeking answers amongst the evil. So why don't we go ahead and pray if you would join with me. Father, you, you hear our cries, you know our hearts. You who knows all things from the beginning to the end. You who knows everything that could be and will be, everything that might have been, you understand 
every aspect. We who live in the shadows, we who live in the moment, we who can't comprehend the depth of human evil and the, the disgusting nature of sin, who lighten it up and do so many things, we come before you because you see it perfectly and we ask for your justice to be done. Though it may be done right now through imperfect human institutions, we ask that the justice would be done as right as possible. And God, while we right now know that ultimately we will not see that final judgment until we stand before you, we ask that that final judgment, your justice would reign, your truth would be proclaimed, and that you would deal rightly with it as we know you will. We trust you. God, for the evil that's been perpetuated, we pray for that justice. God, for those who have been harmed by such evil, we ask for your blessing of comfort. We pray that you would be near the families, near the children, near the classrooms, the teachers, the administrators, God, the the community, and all those who have been around, and the the CHP officers, their families, all of those that have been impacted by all of this travesty and evil that has gone on. We pray, God, that you, You would bring your comfort and bless. And God, where you see it right, bring your grace that people will receive it and be transformed. And finally, Father, we pray that you would allow us to bring that message of grace to all that surround us, that it might not be just justice, but there might be freedom and mercy as well. And we as your children, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for spending that time with me on on that. We just want to continue to pray and lift those things up. In the meantime, we're going to continue on in our series and begin to move forward um, as we continue to talk about barriers, a conversation that honestly is, is important as we discuss the idea of this gospel and idea of this mercy. Barriers is something we all encounter. It's something we will all deal with, especially in our world here in the U.S. I remember one of the first barriers I had to overcome when I first came to Olive Branch. I, I, I came when I was 22. I didn't know pretty much anybody in the, in the church at the time. I had met a couple people, but didn't really know anybody. So when I got hired on and been interviewed by the pastor and the elders, and I kind of showed up to the 12 students who were in the youth group at the time, and it was kind of awkward. You know, you're like, hi, I'm Greg, and I'm not going to kill your children. You know, that's kind of how you led as the youth director who came from, came from another church. And what ended up happening, though, when my first week I was there, was a, a, a parent had let their 12-year-old daughter run the, run the youth event that was the babysitting. So you got a, you got a junior hire running the babysitting event. And I'm going, this is not okay. I'm 22. I'm not that dumb. So this is, this is nuts. And I come up to the mom and said, listen, you can't let your 12 year old run the, uh, run this event. That's just, that's not good. You need an adult there. There's got to be supervision. She looked at me like, my daughter is so capable. You don't even understand. And she just gave me like ripped me up one side and down the other. I'm like going, Oh, no, you didn't. And I stepped up and I, went, I looked at her and I said, you understand I've been hired to run this youth group and you're going to be a volunteer if you want to be a volunteer. But here's the thing. You're going to have to not let your 12 year old run events. And she's like, oh yeah. She just went and she told the pastor and I got in trouble. That's how that kind of went. That was the first barrier. Now everything kind of went, it was cool. It kind of rolled from there. But that was one of those intense moments where I'm like, okay, Olive Branch is interesting. And so as I kind of stepped in and went forward, you know, it's going to be awkward as you step over barriers. And we're going to see that today, especially as we engage in this section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of material, so bear with me as we try to move forward. Come on. You can advance the slide for me. Thank you. 
So anyway, you'll get Acts chapter 10 verses 1 uh, through uh, verse 1, if you will, and open it up. And what we're going to be looking at here today is a, is a very interesting segment of information. And I'm going to really need my slides, so I'm going to really need, hello, slides. So, all right, well, you don't get anything. So we're just going to close in prayer. Thank you for all that we are doing today. Um, no, what we're looking at, and so if you'll go there, Acts chapter 10, but I need to start you off with what's going on here. We've had, a, we're going to have a tale of two towns, basically, two cities. And one city, which is, I'm going to call Joppa, it's Jewish Joppa. Peter has been in Jewish Joppa. We left him off there. Peter's the head of the church at the time. And what he's doing in Jewish Joppa is he's just raised a woman named Tabitha. And in his bringing her back from the dead, the church is growing and it's being ministered to. And as he's engaging there, he's kind of hanging out with a t- Simon the Tanner, and this Tanner has been keeping Simon Peter in his home, and it's all been good. And Joppa is an interesting little town. It's Jewish, so Jewish, in fact, in about 30 years, it will be the head, the, the main spark and headwaters of a major Jewish revolt. And all the Jewish revolt that will come starts in Joppa as they rise up to fight off the Romans, believing they're going to win. And so little Jewish Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea is a pretty power-packed place full of Jewish life and full of Jewish love. But just a few miles up the coast, north of the coast, is another town, a city called Caesarea. We'll call it Caesar's Caesarea because it's like Caesar's Palace, right? No, uh, Caesar's Caesarea is actually a pagan Roman city, brand new city. 50,000 plus people live in this city. And in Caesar's Caesarea versus Jewish Joppa, you have everything that you can think of that Romans like. They have a hippodrome where they would race chariots. They have a huge statue of Zeus where they would worship Zeus and sacrifice bulls. They have another giant statue of the Caesar in which they would pinch offerings to and celebrate the Caesar there. All of this world was purely Roman and purely pagan with all of its idols in the middle of Judea in this place of a Jewish worship. Now, it was not a love city. It was the crown jewel of a man named Herod the Great. You know Herod as in this Herod from the Christmas story. And he's the guy who hates, you know, hates anybody who's going to be uh, pretending to be a Messiah. But he had built this as his location for just celebrating um, his power and his pomp and his circumstances. In this town, we're going to meet a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius is a centurion. He is going to be over several men uh, in a a military unit, and he will have been stationed here in Judea, but retired now and living in Caesarea. And so we have these two locations, Peter in Jewish Joppa and Cornelius in Caesar's Caesarea. And what we have is an interesting illustration of the very vast divisions that live in this time period. Now, what I'm going to do and this is why I need my, my, need my slides, but I'm going to put on my professor cap for a second and kind of set aside the, uh, the preaching cap for a second because you guys need a lesson. And the lesson is some background, a backdrop for the Bible that'll help you as you're engaging in the New Testament. And it's an extremely important backdrop of the divisions between Jews and Gentiles or the nations. And this division is so key and critical, it runs through the heart of this very passage we'll be looking at and makes the point clear. And it really begins way back in the Jewish Old Testament. And what God does is he draws out all these laws. If you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, it's usually you get into the laws and you start like slowing down, right? You're like, Genesis is cool, lots of interesting stories. Exodus, really cool opening. And suddenly laws, laws, more laws. And 
They can't eat what? And they can't wear two kinds of thread? And they got to do what? And there's all of these laws that come out that seem weird to us, don't they? In fact, so weird. A lot of people today look at those laws and they try to say, those are health laws. Those are good for you because you shouldn't have mold. And while there may be some health benefits we didn't realize, that wasn't their point. The original point here is that it starts with the nation of Israel was a very particular group of people amidst a common world. And so they had a way of thinking. And this outer circle is a common circle. It's a common world in which there's an earth and the nations and all the animals. That, That word up there should say animals. And what we're seeing is this is the feeling that all of this is common. Not just common, profane. Because if you were to look and do any study of the ancient world, they all pretty much acted the same. Whether you you was from a Native American tribe, a South American tribe, whether it was an African tribe, whether it was a a European tribe, whether it was way over in India or in China, the same behaviors existed in tribal cultures, same forms of sexuality, the same forms of worship and animal sacrifice. It was all kind of this paganism and animism run amok. Tribal leaders and signs of slavery that was just brutal and cruel. You find it in every single place. Even the Romans and the Greeks, though they considered themselves sophisticated. And when, the, when God talked about that, he said, this is the nations. These are the common folk. They're profane. They're not even close to being part of what I'm doing. Because what he did is out of those nations, he selected one and made it his own. And we see that is the people of Israel. And that's that inner circle, this group of people, God would call them pure or clean. And so you are clean or unclean once you go inside the circle. Anything outside the circle can't ever be clean. It's just not going to be. It has to be Israel. And so it's defined as the land around the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and the animals and the clothing that are clean or unclean. And so their entire existence was defined as showing themselves as either clean before God or soiled and unworthy of worship. And so they would have to clean up so they could worship God. And so when you get into this world, literally the land was the boundary. So much so when Israel began to act like the nations, God kicked Israel out of the land to purify it. We call that the exile. So when he kicks Israel out of the land to purify the land, he is concerned with the purity of the land, the purity of the people, and the purity of the animals that they ate. And that's why they could only eat certain kinds of animals and couldn't eat others and they wouldn't eat pork and they wouldn't eat um, bats and stuff like that. And so there was an entire set of purity laws that made them pure. So in the inner circle then is this last group, it's the holy. This is another division that's even smaller, even further down. And so while you have the common, the pure, now you have this small group that's called holy. And we're not talking like they've just, we're like, holy, and they had a glow. No, that means they were selected out, pulled apart, and said, you guys are for my use. And these are the priests. Only the priests of Israel could serve in the temple. And at the temple was the only place you could offer the sacrifices. This was the centerpiece of holiness. And in that, only sacrificial animals were allowed to be used, and they had to be unblemished. And so the further in the circle you got, the more pure and the more holy things became until you got to the very center. If there was a dot there, there would be only one man, the high priest, who could go into one location, the Holy of Holies, with one kind of animal, a lamb, and only his blood 
to go in and worship in the presence of God. This was the, the concept of the closer you got to the center of Israel, the closer you got to God and his holiness. What happens is that Israel was intended in that middle ring to have gateways. They were called the priests of the nations. God wanted them to stand at the door like we do as greeters and go, hi, welcome, welcome, and usher the nations into the presence of God. That was their intent, but they didn't. They became like the nations. So when they came back into the land, they swore to themselves, we're never going to do that again. And what they did is they built a high wall, metaphorically, with no doors and slammed them shut. And they said, we are not hanging out with the nations anymore. In fact, what's fascinating is certain rules began to show up. You can't go into a, gen, into a Gentile, a, a, somebody of a different nationality's home, or you become unclean. You can't eat with them, or you become unclean. And so they literally would live in their own enclaves away from everybody else because they felt like they could not over, go past these boundaries without dirtying themselves. And so this begins a long journey that we now see. And so we'll pick it back up because now Jewish Joppa has this all through it. And something's going to happen in Caesar's Caesarea with Cornelius to begin to break down some pretty ancient barriers. Let's, let's look at this because God is going to send us as well past our barriers. Beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Cornelius is an interesting individual. He's a God-fearer. This means he is not ready to become Jewish. He may know the Jewish God. He may honor the Jewish God as one of the gods. He may be actually somebody who's learning the morals of the Jewish people and paying and giving money to them. He is considered uh, somebody who is very centered on God, and perhaps even wanting to worship that God, but not willing to go all the way to circumcision. Now, if you're an older man right there, and you think about as an older man getting circumcised, you're like, yeah, that would be a pretty difficult thing to step over into a religion, right? And it was hard for him. So he wasn't going to take that step. So he's what I would call a God-fearer. But God sees his, his alms and sees his good works and sends an angel to him and says, listen, I see what you're doing. I have a message for you. Uh, go send some guys down to Joppa, find a guy named Simon, who's actually called Peter, because he's living in a guy named Simon, who's actually a tanner, his house. Now, if that's confusing, just send guys, you'll go find him, right? So he takes these guys, they march off, and in the middle of the day, as they're coming down to this Jewish Joppa, Peter begins to engage in something different. He's up on the roof, and he's praying, it says, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And this is interesting. So he's come apart from his body is what the language means. In some way, he's in a spiritual state and he's engaged in some other kind of world. And as he's seeing this, he is aware of the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by the four corners upon the earth. And so you have this picture of these, this big sheet like falling out of the sky. And as it comes near him, what does he see on that sheet? But all these animals. And so it says in verse 12, in were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Very likely animals he was not allowed to eat. Like little lizards and Gila monsters and alligators. And over there is a bat and and a couple eagles. And he's like, yeah, look at that. Rise up, slaughter these suckers, eat them. And he looks over there and there's a pig. 
And all of us should say amen right now, because this is the most culinary, theologically important moment of our lives. If you like bacon, because man, this is it. This is the moment. It's going to be okay. All right. Because Peter's told, hey, you see that little piggy over there? Raw slaughter. Eat. And, but Peter says, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. There are our words. He looks at this and says, that's out of the bounds. That's on the other side of the wall. I can't eat those things. I've never done it. I won't defile myself. I'm a good Jewish boy. No. And God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. I got a lot more to go here than just a little bit of animals. I'm praising God for, the, for that little bit, that Jesus cleansed the food. But what he was saying is, look, that barrier, it's time for it to come down. When Jesus had died on the cross, that center section called holy in the Jewish mind, in the Christian mind, it expanded. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the very thing that kept you out of the holies of holies was this giant curtain. And it had torn in two at the death of Jesus. And that meant that the presence of God had gone out to the people and that we had access to him now. And that entrance to God was now open and available. There was a picture that the holiness had gone beyond the priests, beyond the temple, now out to the people. And so Christianity was the belief that Jesus had come to give his holiness away to all of the Jewish people. But it's going to stop at that boundary. It's not going out beyond there. It's going to stay with the Jewish people. This is their Messiah. Why would it go out to the nations? And suddenly Peter is confronted with this sheet, with this message. And he's going, no, I, I can't do this. I'm uncomfortable about this. This isn't good. What, what, what? I'm scared. This seems wrong. And yet God shows him it three different times to catch his attention, to wake him up. And at the end of the third time, when he's sitting there, he's pondering the vision The spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And now he's like, why do I not have to hesitate? He goes downstairs and there's three Gentiles, three Roman men. And he's going like, oh, I can't go hang out with Gentile people. I'll be like, come unclean. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. Don't call common what God has made clean. This is going to echo through Peter's mind as he's working on this. But here now, Peter is suddenly in a situation. God has sent him across his barriers, sent him across his boundaries to go to new territories and to new areas. And in order for the gospel to run, we must overcome our boundaries. If the gospel is going to run, it has got to be broken through. We've got to make it past all the boundaries of our culture. Guys, we have so many boundaries in our culture. I mean, I cannot show you all the different ways that we could show charts of how we divide ourselves up. The bottom line to me is we just have a waffle. Get it? Everything's a boundary. Man, socioeconomic, this is the lower class, and that's the middle class, that's the upper class, and over here, that's African Americans, and, and that right there, that's, the, that's white people, Caucasians, and that's Asians, and over here is Hispanics, and right there, that's the LG, and the L, the G, the B, the T, the X, the Y, the Z. That's all over the place. And ne'er do these people come together, and we've just sectionalized everything. This is American culture. We're a waffle. And waffle, waffles have been soaring in Corona this morning. But the point is this, that we, how do we get past these things? And what are you struggling with? 
You know, are you are you incapable of inviting a somebody with an opposite political perspective than you to your house to have a meal because you're afraid you're going to get into an argument about a president or about a senator or about some kind of law? You feel like ah, I just that just feels dirty. Can you not invite a homosexual couple to your home because you're afraid of what that might happen in front of your children? Or are you um, concerned that they might rub off on your kids? Or are you in a situation where you really wrestle with somebody of a different ethnicity or a color of skin than you? And so you really can't, can't feel comfortable because it's just it's so different and I don't know what to do. Or is it because of, of something like that, their religion, because they're Muslim or because they're Mormon or because they're, they're Hindu that you're just like, I don't, have, I don't even know what we do. These are the things that I believe Jesus wants us to identify. What are the barriers in your heart? What is the thing that's drawn around you that's keeping you from bringing that gospel over? Because the gospel has come and the gospel has one power about it. And I love this because the gospel is like syrup. When it pours on, it overcomes all these boundaries and just keeps on going. And so what you and I have is an opportunity, a message that should break over boundaries because it doesn't look at the boundaries. It says, I want to go over that boundary. I want to get to that next people. They live in another country, we'll cross that boundary. They speak a different language, we'll cross that boundary. You know what? This message is not to be held back by boundaries. Though it may be slowed down, but it's not going to be stopped. So what's the boundary in your heart? What's the one holding you back? When I've really been praying about this this week, it's not been ethnicities or skin colors or anything that's really been bothering me. What I've discovered is it's really more about um, socioeconomic situations. Like, man, I'll I'll meet a really rich guy, and I'm like, I don't know what to say to you. I feel really uncomfortable because you're going to think I want your money because I'm a pastor. And that's just kind of how that works. Or I'll be out and I'll be, there'll be people on the streets and they're obviously in the lower socioeconomic end and maybe some of their behaviors or some of the ways they walk or the way that they're dressed or the way they talk to themselves or whatever it is causes me to be like, I'm going to go over here now. And as I've been praying about this, it kind of just grows in the reality in some ways. I feel like God's telling me, look, you're just scared of all the human beings. That may be, that may be true for some of you. You just would rather go hole up inside your study and let somebody else deal with the gospel. I don't want to deal with people. God's asking you to overcome your boundaries, to step across. And guess what? When we do that and we begin to move forward like that, when we step across boundaries that may be, that may be holding you back or holding you back from giving the gospel, for whatever reason, whatever boundary that is, realize this, that crossing that boundary is going to be awkward. And I mean, Awkward. Take a look how awkward it was. So Peter goes downstairs, meets these guys, three guys, and he has to travel with them for a whole night and a day. I got to travel with you. So he grabs a couple other Jewish dudes with him, his little cadre with him, bodyguards, whatever that is. He doesn't know, but he's not comfortable. So he brings his comfort group with him. They go together and all night they travel and all day they travel. And he's been with these Gentiles who are different from him this whole time. And who knows what that was like? Did he not talk to them? Did they all sit in the corner? Because he asked them like, why are we going? And he heard that there was this angel that showed up to Cornelius and he heard the whole story. So it was like, okay, and he takes off. They get there the next day into Caesar's Caesarea. They're walking down. I guarantee you the first thing they saw at the crossroads of the streets was this witch called Hecate. 
was a goddess that sat at every crossroads. And that was not in the Jewish towns, but it was there in the Roman towns. And they go like, oh, hi. And then they would turn and see the big statue of Zeus and the statue of the Caesars and all this stuff. And this is a pagan land. And this is a little hobunk, podunk boy from Galilee walking in who's Jewish to the core. You find this nice area, this nice home compound with several people. And he walks in and he finally, he's going to go meet a pagan, Cornelius. Oh, those pagans, you know, they'll worship anything apparently. Oh, come on. That's not right, Peter. And yet here's what happens. Peter walks in the door, meets Cornelius. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted up saying, stand up. I'm a man too. That's awkward. You have this stereotype about this person. You think they're going to do this thing and they're going to come into your house and they're going to do this thing. And you're going to be like, I don't know what to do with that. You think Peter's expecting this pagan to bow down? Yes, you better believe he is. He's heard all kinds of crazy things about pagans. And this just reinforced what he thought. I believe Peter was probably sitting there going like, really, God? Really, you're going to ask me to bring the message to these guys? He just bowed down to worship me. And how do you think Cornelius felt when he got up and he realized, oh, yeah, Jewish, worship only their God. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, hmm. Well, let's go get everybody. Awkward. So Peter walks in, feeling awkward, feeling uncomfortable. Got his guys kind of shuffle in. All the people sit down, all these Roman people, all these different. Oh, this is interesting. And then he begins to, he begins to open his mouth. And verse 28 It says that he said this, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Oh, thanks. Really appreciate that. Calling me dirty. It's like an Orange County pastor coming out going, I'm here to tell you that God has told me not to call you dirt people. (laughs) All you 909ers. Oh, thanks for the backhanded compliment, jerk. All these people sitting in the congregation looking at this guy going, this guy's going to preach preach to us? Who brought the jerk Jew in the room? This guy's, and they're sitting, he's looking at these guys going, who brought the dirty pagans in the room? Awkward. Complete awkwardness. Because he's uncomfortable. So then he goes, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked him, why did you send for me? He's already been told twice. Awkward. And it will be awkward. You invite your gay neighbors into your house and they sit down at a meal with your kids and they kiss in front of your kids. And you're going, uh, what do I do? Or you invite the Muslim neighbor to your home and you realize, I made a ham. Awkward. You say grace, or you tell your your atheist neighbor when they're going through a tough time, hey, I'll be praying for you. Yeah. Hmm. Guys, it's going to be awkward. And in our culture, they want to make you feel like awkward is wrong. Awkward's not wrong. It's just awkward. We're coming in love, we're coming in care, we're coming in grace, not to condemn, not to destroy, but to love, to connect and bring a message that God wants to connect with them. 
We need to get over being awkward. We need to get over the fact you're going to get offended and they're going to get offended. Guess what? That's life. And when we overlook an offense, we're gracious and we're kind. And in this case, what we have is an opportunity, yeah, to say dumb things and have dumb things done to us and trust that God is still working in all the awkwardness. And that's exactly what Peter does. He just kind of goes, well, God told me to be here. I'm going to keep moving forward. So he says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He says, listen, I get that God sent me here and he wants to accept you. I'm not going to say that you're not acceptable by God. He told me you are. And because he wants them to hear it, he then enters into a conversation about the gospel. You see, he didn't now show up and say, well, you're all acceptable to God. Uh, Let's let's sing a hymn. You're good as who you are, you pagan people, you. Ha, ha, ha. God sent me here to say, just be you. You guys, do you. That's not what the gospel says. He comes to say, God, open the door. There's a message here. I got to give it to you guys. Here's the message. And he gives the same message that we give today because the message of Jesus is the same message as for all people. The message of Jesus is the same message for everybody. Be them in the L, the G, the B, the T, or whether they're in the upper, the middle, or the lower class, whether they're black, white, brown, yellow, whatever, We don't need to look at these distinctions and say, well, the gospel can't be for you. The gospel is for all people everywhere because his title is Lord of all. That's what Peter starts with. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, he has got a gospel for all. He's Lord over the L. He's Lord over the G. He's Lord over the B. He's Lord over every ethnicity and every language and every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. That's what we believe. And we believe all humanity has the opportunity through the gospel to be made right with God, not just in heaven, right now that that centerpiece of holiness has grown to not just the Jewish people, but busted down the walls and come to a crazy barbarian like me and like you to the Aztecs, and the Mayans, and the Incans, and the Iroquois, and the Celts, the Anasazi, the Chinese, the Koreans, all the way down into the Nubians, all the way through to the Fulani and beyond. There's no nation, no tribe, Nowhere that this gospel cannot go. And so it's no wonder Peter preaches the same message to these men that he preaches to them all. He says, Jesus is the Lord of all. Not only that, let me tell you his credentials. He does miracles. And that's what you see right in the middle here. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Isn't this what you'd expect God to do if he showed up? To do miracles. And he did. And he was attested by God through the resurrection and their witnesses of all he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. And here's the beauty of what we see. This guy would know, this centurion would know what crucifixion looks like. He'd probably put some people to death. So he knows people die when they're crucified and this guy was alive. Yeah, he showed himself to us. Not to everybody, but to us who are chosen as witnesses. We ate and drank with him. 
after he rose from the dead. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean when somebody comes back from the dead? What's the point of this? It says this, that he commanded us to preach this people and to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He's your judge now. So holy and so good, death couldn't hold him. He came into a life to judge humanity, but he's not going to judge us. Instead, he's given an opportunity to him. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So while he is the judge, he is dispensing today mercy and forgiveness. The entry point is not to you do you. The entry point is that you receive Jesus and he comes into your life. He makes you right with God and now you journey with him. The judge has forgiven you of your sin, that which holds you back from a relationship with God. And this is the message that they bring. This is the opportunity to give. And we as a church, as we step over our boundaries, we need to be ready to give the gospel away. We need to be ready to present it to other people. And you may be like, dusting off the old Romans road. Good, do it. Maybe you need to grab an old track with the four spiritual laws, then pull it out. But I would guarantee most of us are like, I don't really know what to do with it. Get involved, get in, the key, get in our keystone, our share keystone, where you can begin to be trained and learn how to fumble awkwardly through presenting the gospel. And if you're like, I, I can't do that right now, I can't do this, then do this. Just invite people to church. I'll do the best to preach the gospel as clearly as I can. But you invite people in. You give them the opportunity to hear. You get out there and engage. And it doesn't matter. It may be somebody you think they would never want this cross the barrier. Offer the opportunity. Share the chance for them to hear the message of life because God is calling all peoples to himself. God is out there challenging them to come to him and to be transformed by him. And I promise you, the gospel will not be stopped by boundaries. It won't. In fact, while Peter was preaching, it says in verse 44, that saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Well, how in the world would they know if the Holy Spirit was poured out? I mean, what way would they, they're like, I see it. It's like a fuzzy haze falling on them. No, they know because here's what happens. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Suddenly, they're speaking in tongues. They're extolling God in languages they don't speak. And they're going, that's Pentecost. We did that. We experienced that. That's the same thing. Hey, they got what we got. We got what they got. This woe. In fact, that's exactly what they say. For Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Barrier blown away. Gone. Obliterated. Just completely removed that Peter's going, I got that. You got that. We got that. We're the same. Now that you received the spirit of God, now you've heard the gospel, you've been forgiven. God gave this to you and we saw it. And we all saw it because you need two witnesses to ensure something was true. And this event of the second Pentecost that happens to the nations was so it could be verified by the church because it was going to be a critical argument later. These guys could say, yep, we saw it. Pentecost happened on them as Pentecost happened on us. And so he sticks around a few days to disciple them. Don't be surprised when God begins to overcome the hardness of hearts and the difficulties in so many people's lives we never thought they would. I got some great examples of some amazing stories out there 
If you've never heard of Rosario Butterfield, she is, we, we have one of her books outside here, but Rosario Butterfield began as a women's studies at Syracuse University. Eventually, she got her PhD in queer studies, became the person who actually stood over that department at Syracuse University. And, and her teachings, she was the one who ends up in 1997 writing the LGBT kind of um, uh, the same-sex policy for couples, the LGBT aims, uh, she fought for them in the university. She was herself a lesbian, celebrated, went out of the pride parades, had pride stuff written all over her walls. And in her response and her job, she wrote a critique of, of the promise keepers as a basically chauvinistic, overemphasized male, just horrible thing. In her article, as she's critiquing them, a man, a pastor who lived in her town named Ken, uh, let me get this right, Ken Smith actually writes a response to the article, begins a dialogue with her. She begins to read the Bible. She begins to see what the Bible is actually saying as literature, because she loves literature. Begins to hang out and start having conversations with Ken and his wife and eventually starts going to that church that he's a pastor over. As the conversation continues on and she's doing worship one day at the church, she realizes she's being a hypocrite because she can't sing some of the things about Jesus that they're singing because she can't say that she's surrendered her life over or these kind of things. And in a moment that she only explains as being utter catastrophe to her life, she went home and Jesus convicted her completely of her pride. She says, it had nothing to do with my homosexuality or anything else like that. It had everything to do with the fact that everywhere I turned in my house, it said pride this, pride that, pride this, and pride that. And clearly the scriptures had said pride is one of the worst things you can hold before God. She received, repented of her pride, received Jesus Christ, and she said the, the, the worst thing in the world had ever happened. She lost everything except her dog, but gained eternal life. If you want to hear her story and see how she processed through all that, and you can, there's a lot of stories like this. Her book was The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Unlikely Convert. Or you can go look up Nabil Qureshi's uh, information and watch his short short YouTube versions of his testimony. A a young Muslim boy fighting for his faith and and fighting as an apologist and becomes a Christian. Or Ravi Zacharias, who was a Hindu man, who was, about, who was a Hindu teenager who was about to commit suicide until Jesus met him in that hospital. And now he's an, an apologist. Or you could talk about Christopher Yuan or David Bennett. There are so many people out there who you would never expect them to be Christians or advocates for Christianity from where they came from. But because somebody crossed the boundary, somebody was willing to love on them and connect with them and walk with them and reveal the gospel to them. These people today are some of our most celebrated voices in our culture to the issues that surround us. Don't believe the gospel can be stopped. It will overcome and race through boundaries like crazy. But here's one thing that you need to not do. As Peter stayed with them, he would later go home to Jerusalem and he would encounter something. He would encounter people trying to make these men Jewish before they became Christians. And we need to be aware not to make non-Christians Christians before they can be saved. And how many times have we done this wrong? 
right? We say, you got to do this. We, we meet these people who aren't Christians, and we're like, until you've done this and done this and follow these rules, you know, it's almost like we want to make the world Christians before we re- they receive Jesus. Man, I, I just don't think that's how it works. I would love to see a church filled with broken, nasty sinners who are leaning only on Jesus. Hey, it's happened. We're here. What do you know? What an opportunity then to realize we're no different Jesus saved us. He's opened the door to them. Nobody had to force you to be a Christian before you came in. I hope not, because that's not what it's about. In Peter's case, he shows up back in Jerusalem, and this is what goes on. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, hey, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Tells his story about the whole sheet thing and all this stuff. He's like, tells that they had the Holy Spirit come on them. And the bottom line is these guys were saying they didn't nip the tip, so they can't be Christians. That's exactly what they're saying. Question, what about the women? How do they become Christians then? You see the fundamental flaw? When we start making rules, we make really bad converts. When I start trying to shape people because I think I'm Lord of all, you get really bad Greg Harris's running around. When you start trying to shape the people because you think you know what's best for them, we don't think that Jesus is Lord of all. We think we're Lord of all. Do you not think the Spirit of God is capable of transforming them like he transformed you? We need a little bit more faith in our God to transform human beings. And were you perfect and all super Christian when you first became a Christian? I bet some of us took a while to get rid of the drugs. Some of us stumbled along with the alcohol for a bit. Some of our language still hasn't been cleaned up. Some of us still are judgmental. We're prudes, arrogant, and proud. Some of us still aren't willing to sacrifice those things of our old life in order to enjoy the parts of the new that Jesus Christ has given us. In some ways, we're an all-in transition. Why in the world would we have to go to somebody and say, you need to stop living with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you can come to church? I believe that if they're with Jesus long enough and they've received Jesus, Jesus is going to be pretty clear from the preaching that, you know, you're not supposed to live with each other before you get married. Just going to be pretty clear in the, in the word of God and in his message by the Holy Spirit that he's going to tell people, look, you're, you're having sex outside of marriage and you, you shouldn't do that and you need to be celibate. I'm pretty sure he's going to tell people to change their identities away from heterosexual or homosexual or trans or you name it to Christian and Christ follower. Start living holy and not worry about all these other things that the world wants to imprint upon our souls pretty sure Jesus is going to be the one who shows up in our lives and challenges us to truly follow him and make decisions after his word and not a political perspective. I'm pretty sure that Jesus is the one that we follow in this world. And as we do that, he shapes us. And that's what Peter says. He's like, look, guys, I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he has given to us and we, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in God's way? Let Jesus transform them. When they've received the gospel, hey, they're like me. Let Jesus begin to work them. Yeah, point, pray, care, disciple, but let God be God in their souls. 
But the word of God and prayer and the transformation begin to move its way. And who are we to stand in God's way? Who are we to hold back the gospel? It's no wonder then they all celebrated. They glorified God. And the Gentiles then have, have received Christ as well. And so this is a big deal. Because at the end of all of this, at the end of this series, Undefeated, while we've seen the gospel overcome all these things, there is one thing that will stop the gospel. Barriers may slow it down, but the bottom line is this. The only thing that can stop the gospel is us not going. The only thing that can stop the gospel is you assuming the barriers are too high and the syrup of the gospel will not flow over every single boundary around us. I'm telling you, Syrup in the room. Church, we have a message that needs to cross the boundaries to the people that we think will make us dirty. But don't call unclean what God has called clean. And through Jesus Christ, they can become holy. And let's bring that message of holiness through Jesus Christ to them, that they can have a relationship with the God who made them. Amen? It's Easter. Let's go give that message away. Let's not waste any more time. Would you bow your heads with me? You know, some of you may have some questions and some desires on how in the world do I know this God better? How in the world do I make a change and make this difference? I would love to talk with you after service. If you're curious and you would like to know more about what Jesus has done, you've got some issues, I'm going to be standing out at the, at the coffee area come talk to me and connect with me because I would love for you to begin to understand what God has done and what he has done for you, to give you a chance perhaps to begin a journey with God today. In the meantime, may God bless us, guys, as we go. And Lord God, would you just hear our prayer now that you would open our hearts, that we would be able to step across boundaries that otherwise, yeah, we're going to be awkward, but you are going to be good. And we've got a message and we need to be the ones feeling uncomfortable and weird as we go. But you, Lord, you can do this. And we trust you that you will change people, you will change us, and you will make this church a holy church that's in your name after you. We thank you for the opportunity that you've given us. And we go now in Jesus' name. Amen.